1: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. LeadSA.co.za.
0: The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and
1: 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby.
0: Hello, Chris. Good morning.
1: Good morning. How are you?
0: Very, very well, thank you. We just uh, have had a very emotional and sad conversation with our listeners. Uh, there's a man who committed suicide because he got retrenched by a cell phone company. So that's what's been dominating our conversation in the first half hour of the show. But anyway, uh, let's just move on. Then, if you uh, if you are listening and you want to ask the Naked Scientist any questions, do give us a call on oh two one four four six oh five six seven oh double one double eight three oh seven oh two. We are taking your SMS as well on three one seven oh two and three one five six seven. Join us as we strip science down to its bare essentials. All right, Chris, I've got some SMSs. One from Rainier who wants to know: Do birds have a sense of smell?
1: birds have a very good sense of smell if you look at the tops of their beaks you'll see they have two little openings and those are their nostrils and those those work in exactly the same way that human nostrils do and the air goes up the nostrils at the top of the bird's beak where its skull is there is what's called the olfactory epithelium and there are lots of tiny nerve fibers dangling down into the airstream there they are decorated with these tiny chemical docking stations called olfactory receptors. And these little proteins recognize, rather like a key going into a lock, the molecules or the shapes of the molecules of things coming in from the air, and those are odorants. And when they dock with their relevant receptor, they stimulate the nerve, and the nerve then sends signals up into the bird's brain which decode what the different spectrum of of smells experienced together is and that's what birds and we both call smells. Birds also have very good vision.
0: Mm, mm. Peter wants to know, I'm allergic, he he says I'm allergic to penicillin, is it possible to become unallergic to it later in life or is it permanent? I thought that was interesting.
1: (laughs) Well, the reason we have allergies and penicillin does cause these occasional drug reactions, frequently people get rashes and things when you give them these drugs and it's because the penicillin molecule ends up activating the immune system and you get a a complex between an antibody and a penicillin molecule in the bloodstream and this complex deposits in a small blood vessel somewhere and recruits a chemical from the blood called complement, or a system of chemicals, and complement is one of the ways in which the body normally attacks microorganisms like bacteria. And so it thinks that this complex between the antibody and the penicillin molecule is because it's found a bacterium, and you then unleash this complement cascade, which damages the blood vessel, and you get a little bit of blood leaking out, which is why you get the red rash. Um, normally when this happens you can't unlearn to have that immunity or that immune response. It's, it's only in a fraction of people, maybe one person in, in 20 or fewer, who actually have these kind of reactions, thankfully. But it probably stems from the fact that penicillin is actually a molecule produced by a fungus. So it's a it's a, an origin, it originates from a microorganism and some people have uh, an immune system which is programmed to detect that particular molecule. And so it's very unlikely you're going to desensitize yourself. That's if it really is a penicillin allergy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because sometimes people have a dose of penicillin, they get a rash or some other reaction for some other reason and then they think... Well, this is probably down to the penicillin because that's the safe decision to make because you don't want to keep dosing yourself with something to which you may be allergic. And so there's probably a, also a, a group of people who aren't really allergic, but they had a reaction at the same time as they took the drug, so they think they're allergic. Okay.
0: Let's go straight from that to Mandla in Dunkeld. Hi. Good day, Radio. Fine, uh, thank you. Uh, good, thanks. Uh, I want to ask uh, Chris uh, a question on vultures. Um, how on do vultures? They- yeah. Okay how
1: do they find their prey i'm asking this because when an animal dies in a national park or cambridge just immediately you see vultures hovering around it
0: okay so how do they know and sense that there's a dead body (laughs) i
1: i don't know the answer for sure but i would say there's a very high likelihood that they use their eyes because like many birds vultures have good eyesight most birds are blessed with exceptionally good eyesight especially birds of prey Um, you see them hovering maybe uh, 200 feet up in the air and looking down and they're able to spot tiny things like mice from that high because they have a retina which is very well adapted to being able to focus in on a very tiny spot and discern extraordinary levels of detail from a very tiny part of the visual world i suspect that vultures Also, we know that they have very good colour vision and that's why they're very colourful themselves because they actually take carotenoids, the red coloured pigments from the things they eat and put them into their skin as a a display, as as ornamentation to attract a mate. So we know that they're very good at colour vision and I think that they're probably looking across a fairly featureless landscape and they can spot an animal shaped thing in the featureless landscape from quite a long way away and then they home in on it, have a closer look. That looks like it could be dinner coming up, and then they Mm -hmm. hover around waiting until the animal disappears, or so dies rather, and then they fly down and make a meal of it.
0: Interesting question, Manja. Thank you very much for uh, calling with that one. Let's go to Paul. Paul, you are calling us from Four Ways. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Hi. Um, um, Before I ask my question, I just want to add to the previous um, thing about the eagles and their vision. I, I believe the eagles actually have a kind of bifocal vision.
1: Um, you're, you're right if, I don't know about eagles specifically, but I do know about kestrels, and if you look at the retina, they have a sort of V-shaped retina, and that means that as they, uh, get closer to looking at certain things, they focus the light onto a slightly different part of the retina, which has a much denser array of these photoreceptors, so that they have extraordinarily precise and accurate and high-resolution vision over a very small part of the visual world, and I, I guess that's what you mean by bifocal vision.
0: Yes, yes, pretty much. Um, my, my question is light. If, if light is not interrupted, if, if, if the photon doesn't hit anything, does it travel indefinitely?
1: Um, yes, the, the photon is an electromagnetic wave, so you can think of it as both a wave and a particle. So when it hits something, you think of it conveniently in terms of being a particle, but when it's traveling, it's a wave. And this is an electromagnetic wave, which means you have a changing electrical field propagating, and if you have a changing electrical field, then you have to have a changing magnetic field, and the two just alternate and propagate through space until they hit something and when they hit something, they impart the energy in the wave into that thing, and that thing then either gets hotter and gives out different light of a different wavelength, infrared, or it moves. And in the case of um, an asteroid, for example, we know that some of the asteroids that have hit the Earth have been dislodged from the asteroid belt by photon pressure. So when photons impact on uh, bodies in space, they can impact a little push to it. And this is called the YORP effect, Y-O-R-P, Yarkovsky-O'Keefe-Radzievsky-Padak effect, Y-O-R-P. Oh, I'm not going to try and
0: remember <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I was saying good and, luck uh, to you, Paul.
1: And and it's because the photons all have momentum. Even though they're travelling at the speed of light, they do, when they hit the object, have momentum, and they give it a little push. So if you have enough light hitting something for long enough, then they will actually impact uh, some momentum impart some some of that momentum, all that momentum onto the thing they hit minus whatever gets reflected off, and it will make it move. And and it's enough to move an asteroid.
0: Thank you, Paul and John. John, you are calling us from Ronda Bosch. I'm so interested in the answer to this one. Good morning.
1: Hi, really hi, Chris. Hmm. I just want to know um, that if you cook with with wine and the and the say you make a stew, and you add wine and the 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 water boils, so the alcohol obviously boils. Off at a lower temperature. Is that food safe to serve to an alcoholic? Um, It depends on how much alcohol is still sitting in the food. The boiling point of alcohol is considerably lower than the boiling point of water, which is how we're able to distill whiskey and things. It depends, though, on how long you have heated the food because the alcohol will be mixed in with the water and it doesn't just because the temperature of the water that's in the food is, say, 90 degrees, it doesn't mean that immediately all of the alcohol boils off. If you add some alcohol, a proportion with time will boil off, leaving behind a portion or proportion and, therefore, the longer you heat it for above the boiling point of the alcohol, the lower the likelihood of there being alcohol left in there, um... But that means that there will always be a tiny, tiny bit left behind because you'll never get rid of absolutely all of it. So I think it probably is safe to serve to an alcoholic person as long as uh, there isn't huge amounts there that they're going to be able to discern and biochemically it's not going to have a very big effect on their body if it's there in Mm. tiny amounts. But if it was there in appreciable amounts, then it could have a problem for them.
0: The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. And I have no comment to that yet. The censorship board has classified the spear as not suitable for viewing by anyone under the age of 16. We'll talk about this another time. Right now on 021-446-0567, We're chatting to the naked scientist Sam in Randberg. Hi, good morning, Reedy. How are you? Fine, thank you. What's your question? Uh, my question is um, viruses are regarded as living organisms and then they tend to affect or attack our bodies with different diseases. I was wondering, if they are living organisms themselves, don't they have diseases? Then therefore scientists can be able to wage a biological war to them and kill them?
1: (laughs) 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 Hello, Sam. Um, Yes, so there's this old sort of saying, do fleas have fleas? In other words, rats are uh, a mammal, and living on a rat is a flea. Is there a flea that lives on the flea that lives on the rat? Is there the equivalent for viruses? And the answer is yes, there is. Uh, there are a family of viruses which were discovered in the last 10 years or so, which are huge. They discovered the first one, and it was so big that they called, well, they called it a mimivirus, and then they found an even bigger one, and because it was the mother of all viruses, it was bigger than some bacteria, they called it a mama virus. And when someone looked very closely at this mama virus, which was discovered in France by Bernard Lascola, I think, was who, the guy from CNRS who discovered this, in, in water from a cooling tower, and it, it actually eats amoebae. This sorry, um, it's actually it, yes. Mm-hmm. This it lives in water from a cooling tower, and when they looked in this virus, they found that inside the virus were these tiny particles that they dubbed Sputnik after the Russian satellites because they appeared to be these tiny little round balls inside the virus particle uh, that was that was inside the thing it was infecting the the amoeba it was infecting, and they then thought, well, what are these tiny particles in here because they're not always in the virus and then when they investigated they found out that this is a subvirus. this virus preys on the mama virus so basically what you've got is a virus and a little virus which doesn't have very much genetic code of its own so it infects a cell that's already infected by a different virus and then it steals some of the things that the other virus is making to make itself. Usually what it does is to steal the coat of the other virus. There are some other viruses that are already known that do this. Uh, They're called virophages. There's one which hangs around with hepatitis B, so you have hepatitis D virus, HDV, or the delta agent. This is a tiny piece of genetic material which uses the coat made by hepatitis B to encode itself, and then spread, and there's another one called an adeno-associated virus, and these tiny viruses infect cells that have already got adenoviruses in them and steal the coat of the adenovirus to package up their own genetic material. So I guess you could say, yes, viruses do have viruses that prey on them, and if you could work out how to shift the balance of uh, or balance of power between the two, you could use them to uh, effectively disable viruses, which is what some people are trying to do.
0: Thanks, Sam. Let's go to Denver in four weeks. Hi.
1: Good morning. I would like to know why is it that I can go to a restaurant and sit outside, I open up a can of soda, and suddenly a bee arrives. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, when I walked in, there there were no bees around, and suddenly there's a bee.
1: (laughs) Well, we were saying earlier about birds um, having very good eyesight and very good sense of smell. Bees and other insects also have an excellent sense of smell, and they do it with their antennae. We have noses, and at the tops of our noses are these little arrays or sprays of nerve endings on the olfactory epithelium with receptors on for chemicals. Bees and other insects have antennae, and their antennae are covered in receptors for chemicals. And as the bee flies along and and wafts its antennae through the air, it can pick up chemicals in the air, and it can also, by flying backwards and forwards, uh, it can compare the relative intensities of those smell molecules... In other words, their concentration and it can follow the concentration gradient to its source. And this is how bees track down flowers and probably why flowers make smells that that are uh, attractive because it's not just us that like the smell, those odours are also detectable by insects including bees. And your bottle of beer contains various volatile agents, many of which are also shared by flowers and other things that bees and other insects like. And so in the same way that when you open a really nice bottle of South African red and Within nanoseconds, there are fruit flies all over the place buzzing around because they can smell the smells which are equivalent to what comes out of rotting fruit that they want to go and eat. The animals are homing in on the volatiles coming out of your beer because it tastes good.
0: Yeah, that it does. Okay, uh, I have an email here. Somebody wants to know, Chris, is there a scientific explanation for why some people have a propensity to committing crimes uh is there science behind a criminal uh, mind or is it purely based on how you've been socialized
1: Mm, that's a hard one um i think it's probably a bit of both we know that there are some genetic things that some people carry which include having an extra copy of the y chromosome because in some people when you are making sperms and eggs for some reason in some people the uh, the sperm ends up with two Y chromosomes in it, or the egg ends up with an X and a Y, and then an e- e- extra Y chromosome comes in, and you get X Y Y. And normally a male has X Y, and these individuals may have a propensity towards anti- a propensity towards antisocial behaviour. There may also be some other genetic, uh, I suppose. Um, causes or changes which might shift the balance towards uh, behaving a certain way. We we certainly think that there are certain genes that can increase the likelihood of someone having an addiction-prone personality. Um, There are various genes in uh, acetylcholine receptors which make you more likely to get um, hooked on cigarettes, for example. So... We, we think that there might be some genes that shift the balance towards certain behaviours, but I think there's a, a very large amount of environmental uh, patterning that goes on. So just because someone carries a gene, uh, it, it has to interact with their environment. And if they're brought up in an environment that doesn't encourage the manifestation of that effect, then uh, although they carry the gene, they won't necessarily turn into a criminal. So I think what it does is effectively load the developmental dice you have an increased risk that you'll succumb to a certain lifestyle or a certain problem, but just because you carry the gene doesn't mean that uh, you're, you're definitely going to turn into that. And a good example of this would be alcoholism. Oh, yes. We know that um, in certain populations, especially Aboriginal populations in Australia, there is a preponderance to developing alcoholism. Individuals who never come into contact with alcohol, though, will carry the gene, but they won't ever become an alcoholic. So that's a good example of how the environment or a stimulus in the environment, if it becomes pres- present, can interact with the gene and cause the problem. But in the absence of that stimulus or environment, a person doesn't necessarily detect the two. So I don't think you can necessarily have one without the other.
0: Okay. Let's go to is it David? Thank you for your patience, David and Midrand. Debbie, I'm coming to you next. Hi, David. Hi, Enze And Chris, morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I've just got uh, a question. Is it possible for uh, a woman to be impregnated by two men and have twins uh, with the same pregnancy? Like, I have twins but impregnated by two men at the same time.
1: Okay. Hi, David. Uh, I hope I'm not going to create some matrimonial disharmony by <laughs> yes, answering this please. question. <laughs> um the answer is yes it is in the same way that a dog uh, has x number of puppies a large litter of puppies because the ovaries pump out lots of eggs at the same time and the sperm that go into the dog will then compete to fertilize the eggs and it's perfectly possible if if a female has mated in at least in dogs with a whole bunch of different males there'll be a mixture of sperm in there and that will then fertilize the the eggs in the dog and you'll have a litter which could have mixed parentage the same thing happens with bees a female queen bee will fly out of a, a nest when she's first um leaving the nest and attract a comet of hundreds of male bees that will mate with the queen and they deposit billions of sperm into the queen and the sperm then compete and the the queen actually keeps those sperm for the rest of her life which can be 20 years to fertilize her eggs with and so the eggs will be have a, a multiple range of different fathers if a female human multiply ovulates, which is what happens when you have non-identical twins, the ovaries pump out more than one egg, if that woman has had sex with more than one man, then there could be a mixture of sperm inside her, and assuming the timing is right, because it comes down to timing as much as anything else, because the sperm have got to be there and the eggs are around at the right time, assuming that is the case, then it's possible for her to have uh, a children by two different fathers at once, because she could have a twin pregnancy, and the, the father of each of the twins is different.
0: David, why do you ask?
1: And the other...
0: Uh... No, okay, no, I was just kidding. Never mind, David. Let's go to Debbie in queue. Hi. Hi, hi there. Mm. I'd like to know, when primitive man started to develop, um, the, the voice box and vocal cords began to develop, and they started to make grunting noises, and so it went on. Um, what in the environment necessitated this development?
1: Hello, Debbie. I, I'm not an expert on this, so anything I say is speculative, and you have one of the world's best people in South Africa who works on this kind of thing, so mm-hmm. I'd, I would definitely um, defer to uh, Lee Berger, who works on early man and writes beautiful books about it and lives in Joburg. But okay. um, what, I w- what I will say is that the enormous advantage that having the power of speech lent to early man and our ancestors is manifest Very much today, we're having a conversation and passing on huge amounts of information to many, many thousands of people through the power of speech. So the enormous selective advantage that being able to communicate in a meaningful way gave to humans meant that there was enormously strong selective pressure on them to develop better and better ways of speaking meaningfully. And I think, it, it, it basically, it's an evolutionary benefit. Early on, and I, I know this because when I was with Lee Berger uh, a couple of years ago and he was showing me the Sadeba uh, fossils, intriguingly, um, the brain endocast of one of his specimens has got a big bulge, uh, an asymmetry, on the left-hand side of the brain in the, roughly the region where, in modern man, you see Broca's area, which is the region of the brain responsible for expressive speech. And this suggests that even though these individuals were a couple of million years, living a couple of million years ago and were much smaller than than us today and had a much smaller brain, they clearly had a development in the part of the brain that is concerned with creating speech and communicative speech. Now, it may be that they didn't have speech like we did, but it may be that that was the antecedent event that began to then put pressure on them to develop even better powers of speech and how to control their, their vocal cords even better. Uh, it's very speculative, though, because what we have from fossils is obviously not um, anything other than just the hard stuff. Softer tissues are much harder to discover in the fossil record, and therefore it's much more difficult to piece that story back together. So it's much more conjecture than actual evidence.
0: All right, and then uh, we have an SMS here that says, Reedy, please ask the Naked Scientist a question that I know he'll never be able to ask. How does he prepare for the show?
1: Um, with a cup of coffee and, uh, and my breakfast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's really all. Yeah, um,
1: um, yeah. Um, I can't think on a, on an empty stomach, so, um, or without coffee. Um, a friend of mine, Marcus de uh, at Oxford University, he, uh, turned up on our show we run on the BBC and, uh, and I said, you know, what is a mathematician? Because we're interviewing him because he's an Oxford mathematician. He said, a mathematician is, uh, a biochemical machine that turns coffee into mathematical formulae. And uh, and I guess I, I sort of think that's a very good analogy. So I stole it. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I do the same thing. Um, so coffee, coffee, and a coffee or a cup of tea, and um, and some breakfast.
0: Okay, you and I are the same, Chris, because I can't <laughs> think until I've had two cups of coffee. With me, I need two, one after the other. <laughs> Then the oh, day I speak begins.
1: too fast. I have to be careful. I, I limit myself on broadcasting days. I limit myself to about um one cup of of strong coffee because otherwise I go too quick, oh. um, and it scares people. It scares me because I listen. <laughs> I li- I listen back to recordings and I think, oh my god, that's about that five thousand so words fascinating. a
0: minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to replay all the conversations we've had over three years and try to pick up where we had more than one cup of coffee. Marva is disputing the two cups of coffee from my side. Says no, it's three. He's lying, of course, as he always does. Thanks
1: There's please. a guy, and um, I'll just tell you this before mm. I go. There's a guy in Scotland, um, here in here in the UK, and he decided to go and see whether a cup of coffee from a coffee shop meant the same thing in a range of different shops. And so he went into all these different coffee bars around Glasgow where he works, and he took he ordered an espresso, took it out of the shop immediately froze it in methanol, went back to his laboratory and tested how much caffeine it contained. And the, the variety was so huge. Some of the shops were serving up a portion of coffee that had 50 micrograms of caffeine. That's not unreasonable. Mm-hmm. But then another shop down the road for the same coffee, 300! Really? So you could get 600% more coffee f- uh, caffeine uh, for the same hit. Yes. Uh, and so you have to be a bit careful because the point they're making is that women who are pregnant, we know that there's a small increase in risk of miscarriage beyond a certain intake of coffee or caffeine on a daily basis. And so you could very easily, if you have one coffee, put yourself three or four times over the safe limit. So be careful with coffee. Strong stuff in front of some of these coffee bars.
0: Wow, I'm speechless. <laughs> Alright, that's it. No more coffee. <laughs> yes. Cheers, Chris. No, it's fine. To next
1: week. Take care, have a great weekend everybody. Okay, bye bye.